This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, women who were on the front lines in Iraq and Afghanistan reflect on the Pentagon's decision to open combat jobs to female soldiers. Here's a snippet of that announcement from Secretary of Defense Ash Carter earlier this month. This means that as long as they qualify and meet the standards, women will now be able to contribute to our mission in ways they could not before. And even more importantly, our military will be better able to harness the skills and perspectives that talented women have to offer. He said women can drive tanks, be Army Rangers and Air Force para-jumpers. Our guests today are thrilled, but don't expect the transition to be easy. Corporal Jen Calloway lives in Boulder. She was a public affairs specialist in the Marines and was deployed to Afghanistan. Sergeant Mel Plett also lives in Boulder. She was an Army combat medic in Afghanistan. And Captain Sarah Taylor served as an intelligence officer in the Marines and was deployed in Iraq. Welcome to all three of you. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Welcome. All right. Since this announcement, critics have raised a variety of concerns, and I want to put them to you as veterans. Um, All of you have since left the military. Uh, First off, Secretary Carter said, as long as they qualify, meaning that women uh, must pass a strength test, for instance, which men have to do as well, I should say, uh, there are fears that those standards might be reduced and lead to less capable soldiers on the battlefield. Mel, what do you think of that fear? I mean, I think there's some legitimate concern there. Um, uh, As a general rule, men tend to be stronger than women in most cases. That's not always to say every man is stronger than every woman, obviously. But uh, I mean, I think when they made the announcement and said women can contribute in ways they haven't been able to in the past, that's not necessarily true because a lot of us were there and they didn't necessarily – we didn't belong to the units we were with, but we were attached to them. And so um, I didn't have to pass any of the physical strength tests of the the infantry guys that I was out hiking around Afghanistan with, but I was there regardless. And you were doing those duties, you're saying? I was. And so in a way, this is making official what was unofficial – in the past. Definitely. Okay. Jen, Sarah, anything to add on that question, that concern? Mm, I couldn't agree sure. more. Sure. Um, I would add that it's also, although the physical strength is certainly um, an important and even a critical component, that in some ways the overemphasis on that sort of undersells the other skill sets that men currently need just as much as women could bring to the fight as well. Um, so I think having that you know, single standard on the physical front um, from a cultural standpoint, you know, with the military, that's definitely important. But um, not focusing on that so much so that then we kind of miss the benefit of the other aspects that that both men and women are going to bring to those type of units as well. And Sarah, what is it that women bring that you think is unique? Um, You know, if you're talking about, you know, some examples from the past, like the female engagement teams, um, groups like that that are going out, that are interacting with the public um, and the local population in different ways, that there's just different aspects to how um, people read people. Um, So whether you split that up into kind of the way men typically read people or women typically read people, um, I think it's good to have a diverse um, set of eyes on any situation. And um, that's just another aspect I think women can bring, um, especially in those sort of situations where you're interacting with people and um, perhaps they're able to identify, 
you know, what's going on for women a little differently or the men or just adding that different perspective, I think. And uh, Jen, uh, weigh in on this question for us. Um, I I know you'd started to say something and I'd like to hear your thoughts. Mm -hmm. I do agree. It's completely going to bring another diverse set of eyes and that's so important. And but one thing I came across again and again is those standards are so important that we can meet that and that we can literally carry the men out of the situation because that um, that confidence, the men that I was with didn't have that confidence. They needed that confidence. And I would come in and do these stories as a journalist and just attach for a short period of time. And without having gone through the ringer with the men from the beginning, I didn't have that trust. I didn't have their, they didn't know that I could carry them out of a situation if I needed to. And so I think it is so important going into this that we maintain really, really stringent standards. All right. Another concern that's been raised since the announcement is that romantic entanglements will get in the way and that men Mm. might instinctively want to protect women, which might change the battle dynamic. Jen, you were reporting from the front lines for the military on what was happening there. What do you think of that concern? I never experienced that at all. I was a total bro with the guys the whole time. I never... Romantic entanglements is the furthest from my mind, and I never got that vibe from any one of my military brethren. Hmm. You are also shaking your head no, Mel. Yeah, I had a similar experience. You're totally one of the guys when you're out there with them. I was out with an infantry battalion for an entire year. uh, So, like, those guys never looked at me anything other than a sister and, you know, a comrade in arms. And, um, like, even when my truck got hit, I didn't get treated any more special than anybody else. Uh, there wasn't any more concern because I was a female in the situation than the other guys in my truck. I mean, everybody was fine in that particular situation. But uh, there wasn't any sort of, oh, no, there's a girl and she's hurt. It wasn't any sort mm-hmm. of, like, weirdness that I noticed, at least. Sarah? Well, and I was going to say, I, I agree with what both Mel and Jen have already said, but that the benefit to opening these military specialties to women is that they can get in in the early stages with Mm. the guys on the training, on the strength, you know, all those kind of strength-oriented things to build that trust that Jen mentioned, and that then in those situations there's really no question of, like, can the guy or the gal handle it, that we've all had the same training, we're all able to, to do our best in that situation, and I think... Um, just knowing the camaraderie in units anyway, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. People are going to be doing the best they can based on their training and want to protect their fellow, you know, Marines or sailors, soldiers, airmen, um, regardless of gender. Definitely. Mel, I understand that when you were in Afghanistan, um, you used men's shampoo and body wash, which uh, made you smell like a man. Why did that matter? This is a story you singled out for us. Well, uh, there was certain situations where I was out um, on an outpost where I was maybe the first uh, female service member that had been out there. And you're just out with, you know, the guys for eight months and you may be the only woman out there and... Some of them are married or they have, you know, families back home. And, like, when you're away from your spouse that long, um, you know, other women start – you just start to notice them because, you know, you're, you miss your wife or whatever. But the, the, um, the platoon sergeant who I worked for, he even mentioned that he appreciated it. He's like, I appreciate that you don't smell like a girl because that would be distracting to me. And he's like, I know that you're a girl. Like, in your mind, you know that somebody's a man or a woman. Like, it's hard to not notice these things. But, you know, you have your sensory – perceptors and like your sense of smell which is like a very strong you know 
can be a very strong turn on for some people. So if you kind of, you know, smell like a clean man, because I, I didn't smell like one of the dirty guys, but I smell clean because <laughs> I don't want to smell dirty, but I, I would just not go out of my way to wear women's perfume and I didn't wear makeup or anything. Well, you know, this might seem like a minor point, but um, Sarah, I'd like your reaction to this. Is it important, and I've, I've heard several of you say this, that a, a woman in combat just be one of the guys? Or is that unfair to ask of someone who's not a guy? Uh, what do you think? Uh, I think, you know, that's one of those um, situations that has a lot of gray areas, too, on what even... It, from any, any individual to another, their definition of femininity, masculinity, what it means to be a man or a woman is going to be, is going to be different. But um, I, I agree with what Mel was just saying as far as being in the situations. And I think if nothing else, just not going out of your way to, to over-feminize. And at the same time, you don't want to over-correct, I think, too. I mean, I definitely remember working with some women who I felt like kind of went to the other extreme where then it becomes disgenuine. So, I mean, that's going to land a little differently for, for each person on, on how to kind of be, um, still be authentic, but be part of the group, which is just a dynamic we all sort of have to figure out in the military. But um, I, too, avoided feminine smells. I mean, because if any time I even used, like, a lotion hours before and then came in, it, all the men would say, it smells like girl. And so you just, you notice, you know, what, what sort of makes your own situation a little bit easier, um, things that you can modify like that that I don't think are a big deal to just, you know, avoid overly, you know, fragrant, fragrant feminine smells and things like that. So, and this, May I add in here? Yeah, please do. Go ahead, Jen. This is Jen, and I did some of that overcorrecting that Sarah mentioned. As a journalist, I would pop in with these guys for a short period of time, and so I would go into overdrive trying to get that trust and get – I needed their interviews. I needed their honest thoughts. I needed them to be comfortable with me. And so I really went um, to that extreme trying to be one of the guys. And there was – that was really hard for me to come back from. I really – kind of came back to the States after a deployment and, and went to the other extreme trying to find my femininity again. And so, like Sarah mentioned, as we build these things in from the beginning, it's going to eradicate a lot of that back and forth. Yeah, I wonder if this will become easier as women in combat become a, a usual thing. But I have to say what you're talking about there, this constantly thinking about, am I over-feminine? Am I over-masculine? Am I striking the right balance? It sounds a bit exhausting, mm. to be honest. Is it is is that tiring, Mel? Um, yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, because when, you, when you're the minority, like the group I was with, there was 12 women on a outpost of about 1,200 guys. So quite, quite the minority. So you don't want to like draw attention to yourself when you know that you're already the different person. Hmm. But I don't, I don't know that it's exhausting, especially when you're in a combat zone, like you, I mean, it's always mission first. And if you, if you're there with the, with the group the whole time, um, it's just, you know, this, this is what we have to do today. This is our mission. Um, these are the things we need to get done. And so you're more focused on making sure that you can c- accomplish your mission versus wait a minute. Am I too girly? I mean, it's just things that go through your mind when, when I would have my mom send me shampoo, I'd ask for a, a certain brand, but yeah. it wasn't like a constant weight on my shoulders that I noticed. You know, we're talking about this idea uh, of women in combat as a very novel thing, but 
it uh, perhaps has been a long time coming in your minds. I mean, I think to Israel, for instance, women have been serving alongside men for years, and it's not that big a deal. Um, how do you feel about that, Sarah? Yeah, that's um, I and I actually have a friend um, who who has served in the Israeli army and has talked to her about this at great length. And um, I mean, this is where that that really broad term of cultural change comes in, where it's like, all right, well, we need we need to start shifting things culturally um, a little bigger and a little broader now. I mean, even in, in talking about these somewhat you know, silly examples of, like, shampoo or lotion and certain smells, I think the flip side to that um, from, a, from a cultural standpoint is to say then to not effectively, I think, not to blame the woman if then a guy, you know, uses that as an excuse for, well, but she was wearing, you know, perfume. Like, understanding we're all, as, as professional women, cognizant of, of things like that, you know, hopefully not to a degree of it being exhausting, but are aware of it. Um, but also on the flip side, making sure that then that's not used as excuse for bad behavior from others, uh, men or women. I mean, I think there is like two sides to the announcement of uh, all combat um, MOSs being open to women is from an individual perspective, I think it's a good thing because I was out there with these guys, but um, because of the way they sign us over, you're basically like a piece of equipment. So like they sign you over to a new unit and they're basically borrowing you. So trying to get, say, like a new uniform, if I needed extra, a new pair of boots, like I, I fall in between everybody's duty rosters and I don't b technically belong to either unit. And so from an individual's perspective, that can be um, difficult and create some um, challenges just because... Not that nobody wants to claim you, and somebody will find a way to take care of you, but just because of the way Army regulations work and who the quartermaster can order uniforms or boots for, hmm. you have to be on their duty roster. So if you fall between those two things, it kind of puts you in a difficult situation because you don't actually belong to the unit you're with. So I think um, from an individual perspective, I think it's a good, a good thing and a long time coming. But from a force perspective, I think there will be definitely an adjustment period. An adjustment and it's going to be period. difficult for some people. Right. It's a cultural adjust adjustment and it's also a kind of mechanical, if you will. I wonder if we could wrap up with a question of selective service in the draft. So the question has been raised with women being able to serve in combat. Should women have to register for selective service? Jen, do you have thoughts on that? Hmm. I think that that... I think it's great. I think anyone enjoying the benefits of our country should be happy to sign up for this roster. Mm -hmm. I think that is going to be challenging with these with these regulations and and, and stringent. I think that's an interesting question. Mm. It's also been a long time since we've had to implement a draft, that's so I don't, true. I don't know how valid of a concern that is because we're in an all-volunteer force right now. Yeah, um, and have been for some time. But of course, elective service, you still have to register as a young man. And, and as like you were saying with Israel, where everybody serves, it's kind of like the entire young population, everybody serves. So it's like a common experience. That's right. Um, so I don't, I don't think it is an issue. Uh, all of you, as I mentioned earlier, uh, have since left the military. Do any of you wish that you could rejoin uh, given this decision? Um, Sarah? Uh, again, this is something uh, my my veteran friends and I have talked a lot about. Um, there's definitely a 
a piece of me that that does get excited and fired up like in a good way where it's like man i i kind of want to go back in and give it a try um <laughs> realistically at this point in my life i'm probably not up to the physical challenge um had it been available when i was in i was definitely one of those women that was asking um like when i was at the basic school i wanted to go to infantry officer course after mm-hmm. i finished and asked and asked and asked to go like i know with certainty i would have i would have been one to want to give it a try um back then but at this point um no i probably couldn't couldn't go back in and make it happen but i'm i'm really excited for the women who do have that opportunity jen very quickly would you like to go back no not today (laughs) all right it's straightforward and mel do you have uh no, I wouldn't because I only wanted to be a medic, and fortunately, that was one of the MOSs that was available to women when I was in. So I wouldn't. It didn't really change my my service engagement. MLS, M- MOS, Military Occupational Speci- Specialty. There you Sorry. go. It's the the military is full of that <laughs> yes, kind of lingo. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you so much to the three of you for joining us. We appreciate it. So Jen Calloway, Mel Platt of Boulder, and Sarah Taylor, who lives in Denver, they all served in the U.S. military, spent time in war zones. When we come back, an artist manages to find beauty in disease. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Seeing three of everything can be disorienting, and it's what happened to Denver artist Sarah Richter in 2009. One day I woke up and I saw the world totally differently. It was very painful and frightening, But it was also really beautiful, too. It was also really beautiful, she says there. Doctors diagnosed Richter with multiple sclerosis. Since then, the 34-year-old has used art to explore how MS affects her body. Richter recreates what she calls her invisible symptoms in her latest project. She hopes that it will help others understand what she goes through. It is titled Sensory Paradox, an artist's experience with multiple sclerosis. It is at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. And a welcome to the program, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I want to go back to that uh, morning in 2009 when you had mm-hmm. triple vision. Uh, you said it was scary and beautiful. What was beautiful about it? Well, it was a seeing seeing the world around me in a completely different way. Um, it was fascinating. You know, before that, um, I felt like my senses were uh, very fixed um, as far as understanding the world around me. And to, to see um, ghost images um, layered on top of one another um, of of the surroundings. Um, it was it was really beautiful. When you say that our senses are normally fixed, what do you mean? Well, I mean that they're reliable. <laughs> <laughs> and when I... Yes. Uh, I want to know if you saw beauty instantaneously or if that only came after the fact because I'm trying to think of that situation and all I would feel is terror. So bully for you if you found beauty immediately. Did it take time? You know, I think the experience was definitely traumatic, and there were a lot of things going on. I felt a lot of a lot of emotions about it. Um, but even at the time, I think it was because um, it wasn't something that lasted for an hour or even for a few days. This is something that I lived with for several months, and I still experience from time to time. And so I think just being in that place and and getting familiar with it and that 
I really felt like I was still paying attention. And it was something that you adjusted to then over time. Yeah. And of course, at first, it didn't carry the baggage of MS. You didn't have that diagnosis immediately. I didn't. I did have a suspicion um, that it could be MS. You know, I looked online and uh, there, you know, the symptoms were, um, you know, they Similar were, to yes, exactly. And, and what were the other symptoms? So the, the vision was certainly part of it, but yeah, I had a uh, vertigo and um, extreme fatigue uh, as well. And the vertigo was really interesting too, uh, because it wasn't like the world around me was spinning. It was like I was spinning. It was such a strange sensation, and it was really hard to even just sit up for long periods of time. I was basically in bed most of the time for about seven months. Goodness. Yeah. I, I think that part of what led you to, to suspect MS is that it is in your family. Is that right? Uh, yeah, my father has MS as well. And so and that was my, my first suspicion. Right. It's and not always genetic, though. It's not. And I don't think it's very common either. Uh, MS is a multi-factor disease. And that's, that could be one component, um, but it's certainly not. How are you doing now? Uh, I'm doing really well now. I, I feel like I live a relatively normal life. I've gotten excellent care um, from University Hospital and great support from, um, um, sorry, from the Rocky Mountain Multiple Sclerosis Center. And so I feel like, um, like I'm really doing well. I've learned how to manage my symptoms and, and to, to work around that. I understand that your 17-year-old daughter was also diagnosed with MS? Yeah, she was. She was. So it's now multi-generational. Is that really painful? Does it provide comfort in some ways to have others along the journey with you? I mean, I was really upset when I found out that she had MS. Um, I, You know, as a parent, I just want to protect her, and it's not something that I would want her to, um, you know, to have to to go through. Um, like I would want to spare her of that. Uh, but, um, that experience has inspired her to pursue neuroscience. So, um, I feel like, wow, you know, who am I to say, you know, what her path is and where she's going. And I, I think that's kind of a, a beautiful outcome. Do you commiserate a lot with your father and your daughter? Um, you know, my daughter and I are very close and not so much with my father, but, um, you know, I think that, it's interesting, too, how with each generation, MS can look really different. Um, it also looks really different from one individual to the next. So it's not always that you have the same symptoms um, and share a similar experience with the disease. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Prior to your diagnosis, you illustrated children's books, and you say MS inspired you to pursue fine art. And so you enrolled in a program at the University of Denver called Emergent Digital Studies. And you hope now that your art can be a way to communicate an existence that's otherwise hard to describe. Uh, this shows up in a previous installation called Infinite Refraction. Um, tell us briefly about that piece and the experience you wanted to create with it? Yeah, I think that um, Infinite Refraction, I was really um, exploring um, the vision changes that I experienced. And I was trying to um, learn and understand, you know, what that was about and, um, and, and what I do with that now. And basically, uh, they were five um, sculptures uh, loosely derived from crystal structures, and they were mirrored acrylic on mirrors. And so it 
was an environment of these mirrors. And that distorted your perception. Distorted your perception. And as you walked through, you could see yourself um, upside down and through all of these angles and, and um, reflected all of these times and, um, and, and other people walking through the gallery as well. And I think that it was disorienting and alarming and beautiful as well. And it helped me to to make sense of that somehow. Um, like, oh, like that's what I was trying to get to. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Denver artist Sarah Richter, whose latest show project is called Sensory Paradox, an artist's experience with multiple sclerosis. And let's talk about this uh, latest project. It's a compilation, actually, of several works, one being a sound installation that is representative of your hearing symptoms. It's really unnerving. That mm-hmm. is that a literal approximation of what you hear? Yeah, I wanted to uh, basically convey that there can be different things happening in each ear, and it's very disorienting. Um, that one ear could be experiencing hearing loss or, or tinnitus, like ringing in the ears, yeah. and and the other one it might sound very muffled or or distorted. So um, that you know, there's sort of a disconnect there um, with hearing, but it's also conveying. Um, confusion in understanding sounds, which it, it goes beyond, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I don't yeah. quite understand the, all the details of it, but basically it's, it's our ability to process sounds and, and that there's not this hierarchy of, um, of filtering. Yeah, of what's important and what's not. Right. And exactly. anyone who's been in a loud restaurant mm-hmm. can identify with, with that, I, I suppose, in, in some regards, but mm-hmm. not to that degree. Right. You, you mentioned uh, certainly that one of your early symptoms, and which clued you to MS, was fatigue. And there's a video installation as part of this project called fatigue. Yeah. Uh-huh. How, do you, how do you convey fatigue to someone? <laughs> I know. Uh, that, that's a really good question. It's a very difficult thing to describe. Um, uh, but I feel like it's analogous to being underwater. And um, it's, you know, when we think of fatigue, we often think of being tired. And that's certainly part of it. But fatigue is also so much more than that. It's, it's a state of being. It's hard to move the body. And every single gesture, um, it, it takes more work to do. And and, and so moving through water, which has resistance, is a good exactly, way to convey that. Exactly. And trying to, like, maintain balance and, and put forth so much more effort to do these simple tasks. And so that was what this video piece was really about. You also want people to contribute to the art through something called the mosaic of body parts. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, about reconnecting. And basically, it's inviting people to take a photograph of a body part where they've experienced some form of loss. And then they um, basically contribute that photograph to a figure on the wall. And it becomes, over time, this mosaic of a figure of all these different parts. And, uh, you know, I was looking at this piece yesterday, 
and at all of these photographs. And I was so moved, really, that um, these people have been so honest in contributing um, what are the photos their stories. Of, what, is the, what are the photos of? Um, there are uh, lots of different things of, like, um, parts of the face, um, even teeth, uh, you know, hands, fingers, toes, you know, um, just – and it's so interesting because um, – it's like, wow, you know, there's a story there. There's so much to these people that, um, you know, and that there's this commonality. And basically that it's a way of relating to, to one another, that we've all experienced some form of loss at one point in our lives, whether it be through MS or through an accident or another illness. And in this piece, Reconnected, it strikes me that you are bringing together people um, around the idea of physical limitation of some sort and that you, that can vary that definition can vary but a lot of us experience it even though we might not think of ourselves as having perhaps a disability or a disease you know right exactly and my hope is that by sharing my experience that you know it starts a conversation you know it starts a dialogue about um about what it what it means to be experiencing different types of loss in in our lives it sounds like you are a very hopeful person I am, okay. yes. I'm very positive. <laughs> and do, do you think that the art is more about that hope or is it more about the struggle? You know, I think it's about a lot of things. And I think it's about both. Um, I think MS is complicated. It's a complicated experience. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's been really helpful and it's been a gift to me. And I, I think that I'm a better person because of it. And other times I get really frustrated and, you know, I, I don't think it's fun to have those limitations. I'm relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> I thought this is, this is an exceptional person who sees only a gift in this. But it, there are hard times. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Denver artist Sarah Richter. Her latest project is called Sensory Paradox, an artist's experience with multiple sclerosis. You can see this through March 3rd at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. We'll be right back with a side of Buffalo Bill Cody that most people don't see. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In 1884, Evelyn Booth and his buddies left England on an adventure. They would carouse, brawl, and shoot their way across the U.S. And they would meet a legend along the way, Buffalo Bill Cody. At the time, his Wild West show was floundering. Booth documented the trip in a blue leather diary. And that diary sat quietly for decades at the Denver Public Library until an archivist there, Kellen Cutsforth, started to read it, then verify the tales and transcribe them. The result is a new book called Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. And Kellen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Well, first off, who is Evelyn, Evelyn, pardon me, Booth, so, uh, whose Evelyn, eyes this is through? Evelyn Booth is a uh, landed English gent, and by landed English gent, he, in today's terms, he would be a trust fund baby. Okay. <laughs> and um, so a well-off man who can has uh, unlimited funds and can do whatever he wants. And what he wanted to do was explore, yeah. I suppose. Come, come to the United States – and um, so the Civil War has ended and he, and the country is 
open for adventure and excitement and see all the sights, Niagara Falls, head out west, see the Native Americans, um, get a flavor of the country that's just starting to really become America. And he had the money to do it. And he had the money to do it, yes. This journal that he writes is full of fights, there's swearing, there's pranks. (laughs) Yes. What's funny is they don't even get out of London before they commit an act of petty larceny. Yes, yes. Stealing ducks, a crate of ducks, and then loosing them in a uh, pub where they have to be captured, and and then they jump on their ship and they head off. And yeah. it, it's a sign of the bad behavior to come. I yeah, suppose. very. They would be considered frat boys probably today, <laughs> or or bros, if you will. So yeah, in today's vernacular, they arrive in New York, uh, but that is not where they want to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evelyn Booth visits Niagara Falls Correct. with his friends, and they are yeah. uh, unimpressed by Niagara Falls. They think it's too commercial. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people selling uh, what they call brummagen or just junk, cheap trinkets. Um, and what's amazing, they're there in in the winter. And so uh, I don't know if anyone's ever been to the falls in the winter, but um, the, the – um, Falls are iced over and they're really beautiful. They really are if you've ever, ever seen them. And so, uh, but in his typical sort of English fashion, it's a backhanded, well, it's okay. It's, it's all right. It's not great, you know, and there's all these junk sellers around. So, yeah. And they want to visit Colorado. Yes, they do. Why Colorado? So the, one of the main reasons they come out here is to hunt and, uh, they want to capture a grizzly, and uh, today it would be considered trophy hunting. Um, bison are, bu- are the buffalo, if you will, and grizzlies are a major, major um, accomplishment to, to kill and capture a, a, a grizzly bear. So that's what lures them west, as it did many people, by yes, the way. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Moneyed people. Yep. They do not end up in Colorado, however. Uh, instead, after some hunting trips, they end up in... New Orleans. Yes, in New Orleans, and right? there they at least come across someone associated with Colorado, and that's Buffalo that's Bill right. Cody. The, the West's favorite son. And whose grave is on top of Lookout Mountain, just west of Denver. Uh, what was the Wild West show like when Booth first went to see it? So the Wild West show, um, and uh, for the listeners, uh, Bill never used the term show. It was always Buffalo Bill's Wild West because it was supposed to be a historic entertainment or a historic event. Oh, and he found uh, show to be dismissive. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And so if you ever see a piece of memorabilia that has the word show in it, it is bunko. It is fake. So um, Buffalo Bill never used that. Uh, he always, like I say, saw it as a historic reenactment. But anyway, when um, Booth and his companions see the show, uh, they're a little, again, disappointed um, um, with it because, one, it's raining the whole time in New Orleans. This is one of the reasons why Bill is having financial trouble at the mm. time because not, he's not getting many uh, spectators at the show. Um, but uh, – and and so they say, oh, they shoot very feebly and these, these, sort, of, these sort of things. But um, they are uh, still impressed with Buffalo Bill that he has the ability to put something like – in a uh, an event like this together. And I think at one point, uh, Evelyn Booth and Buffalo Bill meet. Yes. And they uh, essentially engage in a shooting Yes, contest. they do. So um, at this 
point, uh, Buffalo Bill's a very good shot. He's been a Buffalo hunter uh, for the railroad uh, in a previous life and a scout uh, for the military and been engaged in uh, conflicts with Native Americans. And so he's a very good shot at this point, and so is Booth. And they have a shooting competition in front of 3,000 spectators um, and a competition, I might add, that the American wins, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill wins. Wins it, yes, All right. by one one clay pigeon. And you uh, have acknowledged this, but these just aren't great days for Buffalo Bill. No, Otherwise, um, Evelyn Booth writes, I fear the Honorable Cody is having a bad time of it. Yeah. Audi- audiences are, are small, as you say, in part because of the weather. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of props and equipment had been lost in an accident. Right. So before Bill came to New Orleans, which is where they were going to winter because they thought the uh, uh, weather would be much nicer in New Orleans than, say, wintering in somewhere north where you run into a lot of snow. Um, they uh, decided to head south and whilst heading south down the Mississippi River, uh, the boat crashed into another uh, vessel and sank and they lost their equipage. They lost uh, 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 many antelope and other animals that are in the, the uh, uh, show and they uh, sum of about $20,000 of loss on the, on the river. Goodness. Well, of course, I'm thinking of Evelyn Booth as a moneyed individual. Yes. And the natural question would be, does he bail out Buffalo yes, Bill? Yes, he Co- does. Oh, he does. Okay. So in, in, uh, so along with the, the poor, uh, spectators, uh, the poor number of spectators at the show, um, in New Orleans, they lost about $60,000 there, um, with, uh, low ticket sales. So when Booth and Cody get together and become friends and have their shooting competition, Booth eventually then steps in and becomes a quarter owner of the show. And I uh, found the uh, agreement that the two signed huh. together um, where uh, Booth gave money to Bill and became a quarter owner of, of the Wild West. Yeah, b- b- Bill is like $80,000. Yes, 80000 yes. And at that time, we remember, is, is 1884. So That's a lot it's of a deep, deep hole that he's in, yes. We are getting a picture of the West through an Englishman's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is how you can describe Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. It is an Englishman's Journal of Adventure in America, and uh, it was put together by Kellen Cutsforth, uh, who found this diary of this mm-hmm. Englishman uh, at the Denver Public Library. Let's pick this discussion up after a quick break. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's get back to our conversation with Kellen Cutsforth, the author of Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. It's a transcription, essentially, of the diary of a wealthy Englishman, Evelyn Booth, who met and helped Buffalo Bill Cody. And Cal and I have been fascinated by Buffalo Bill's life, how he went from frontiersman to running don't call it a show, Don't Ryan. call it a show. Uh, reliving the <laughs> glory days of the West. Um, he'd won a Medal of Honor Correct. as a civilian scout during the uh, Indian Wars. Yeah. American Indians were part of this spectacle as well. Mm-hmm. What was the goal? He he. What did he want to do to, for audiences? So he wanted to, because it was so unique... Um, uh, the, the native peoples, uh, had such unique culture, had such unique, 
life um, and style and look and everything. He wanted to bring that to people that he had seen in the West when he was a scout, when he was um, a buffalo hunter. Um, And he wanted to give them an opportunity to get off the reservation at this point and bring their culture to uh, audiences who had never seen it, audiences in the East, audiences overseas. And does he strike um, like more of a freak show note or of a respectful note? I It, it is a respectful note. Um, I think uh, in today's history, uh, you get a lot of revisionist history that sort of perhaps he exploited them or mm-hmm. something like that. But I, I, there's really no proof of that. Bill respected the native peoples. He paid them as well as he paid any of the cowboys, any of the vaqueros, any of the other performers who were in the show. Um, and he respected them when it was when they wanted to return to their homes and their families, they were allowed to return. Some critics, though, over the years have said of Buffalo Bill's Wild West that it was one of the original sources of negative stereotypes mm. perpetuated by Hollywood right, for right, decades. Right. And that though that might not have been Buffalo Bill Cody's intention, that might be the legacy. Yes, and and that's very true. That that um, uh, you are correct. Uh, Edison's first images on the kinetoscope were of uh, performers in Buffalo Bill's Wild West, and then many other Hollywood directors and authors liked those images, and they took them and they built it into what we know today. Well, it's interesting that you mention Edison. Yeah, because I wanted to share something mm-hmm. with you. This is Buffalo Bill's voice. Yeah. We found an old recording. He is praising Thomas Edison for inventing the device that is recording his voice. It's pretty scratchy, as you might guess. It seems almost uh, uncanny that the voice in this place can be perpetuated and that he has sent out to the world his phonographs, which have given more entertainment and pleasure than any invention in the history of the world. Let me paraphrase there. Instead of saying his voice is being recorded, he says it's being perpetuated by this device. I love that. Uh, We're going to perpetuate an interview right now. Um, And he says that this device has given, you know, the world more entertainment and pleasure than any he can think of. The audio comes from the G. Robert Vinson Voice Library at Michigan State University. Um, after all your work, Mm -hmm. what is your sense of what Buffalo Bill was really like? Um, being a historian and, and, uh, and also a fan of Bill, um, you know, he respected his performers. Um, I, I think it's important to note one of his most, uh, popular, if not the most popular performers and highest paid in his show was a woman. Um, and he, uh, fought for women's suffrage. He respected the Native Americans that were in, that was in his show. Who who is and, the woman? Just uh, oh, Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah. Annie, get her. your gun. And um, so uh, I find uh, Buffalo Bill to be uh, uh, very respectful and um, almost uh, loyal to a fault to the people that he felt indebted to, um, even though he was probably a bit of a playboy and probably messed around a little bit on his wife. Yes. (laughs) And someone, it sounds like, committed to education in some regards. Yes, very much so. So this Englishman, Evelyn Booth, who Mm -hmm. meets him, um, does he help shore up 
Buffalo Bill Cody's career or fame or, you know, what, what happens? Uh, uh, he gives him the shot in the arm that he needs in the very beginning of the show to really help it get going um, when he when he uh, goes into the contract with Bill. Um, Bill's able to sort of get back on his feet and then uh, make a, a lot of the losses back by touring around the East Coast. And then... Uh, Booth is one of many Englishmen who helped Bill hatch the idea of taking the Wild West overseas, which created his superstardom, which mm. turned him into a rock star, if you will. How many places did he go? Like what kinds of uh, countries? So he uh, all over Europe, um, in England first, um, and of course, uh, very well known. He played for uh, Queen Victoria. And um, he was so well-loved there, then they made a European tour into France and several other countries in, in Europe, um, bringing the Wild West, bringing this American uniqueness to to the to uh, the continent, to the country. And so he absolutely, Buffalo Bill Cody, did um, solidify in the world's mind what mm-hmm. the West was. Mm-hmm. And, whether, and whether it was an accurate picture or not, I exactly, guess. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, the mythic West, if you will, sort of uh, uh, takes away the mundane life of a pioneer or people living on the plains and gives you the shootouts and the circling of the wagons and all these sort of things that uh, through Hollywood, through the Wild West, through Buffalo Bill's Wild West, people identify as Western, as Western America. Well, we've uh, got to wrap up with Evelyn Booth, <laughs> this this English frat boy, as you've yeah, described right. him, exactly. who, and trust fund baby who comes to the United States and uh, has this storied encounter with Buffalo Bill Cody. Did Evelyn ever make it to Colorado to, to get his grizzly? As far as I know, I I. I I don't know if he ever made it to Colorado to get his grizzly, but I know that he did make it out west and actually owned ranch land in Wyoming, and uh, which was my my estimation, something that Bill uh, told him that would be a good investment if you own all this some of this land out here. So yes, he did make it west. Yeah, and really laid down, I guess, some roots. Yes. Thanks for sharing this story with us. It. Yeah. Kellen cuts forth. He put together the new book, Buffalo Bill, Boozers, Brothels, and Bare Knuckle Brawlers. It's a carefully annotated publication of an Englishman's journey and journal about the West. Finally today, Denver folk musician Josh Dillard writes music that blends elements of country, pop, and doo-wop. Dillard recently released a new EP, Through the Eyes of Time, and stopped by the CPR Performance Studio to share some of his music. This is the song Vanish Like a Mist. A man's troubles They never seem to roll away of the wilderness the storms that keep my soul at bay and when you ask me why I never seem to cry I have a heart of stone I am a bag of bones when the full blaze 
music of Josh Dillard. The song is called Vanish Like a Mist, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, thanks for being with us. Any 